Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Mark Twain's Letters from Hawaii. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. All books that Uvula audio presents are in the public domain. In 1865, Mark Twain, well, Samuel Clevens, had his first success as a writer when his humorous tall tale, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, was published in the Saturday Press, a New York weekly magazine at the time. That story is still one of Twain's most popular and well-known tales. At any rate, the story brought him national attention, and a year later, in 1866, he was offered a job to be a travel writer for the newspaper, The Sacramento Union. His first job was to go off to Hawaii, then called the Sandwich Islands, and give a running travel log of life there. The penniless journalist spent four months writing about his travels in the, quote, loveliest fleet of islands that lie anchored in any ocean, unquote. Twain was all over the place in his choice of commentary. One letter rhapsodized about scenery, while another delved into the death rituals for a native princess. Any of you who choose to listen to these letters will never again see their favorite vacation spot, or home if you live there, in quite the same way again. They will also remind you why Twain's legacy has endured. And now, letters from Hawaii. Letter 1. On board steamer Ajax, Honolulu, Hawaii, March 18, 1866. Climactic. We arrived here today at noon, and while I spent an hour or so talking, the other passengers exhausted all the lodging accommodations of Honolulu, so I must remain on board the ship tonight. It's very warm in the staterooms. No air enters the ports. Therefore, have dressed in a way which seems best calculated to suit the exigencies of the case. A description of this dress is not necessary. I may observe, however, that I bought the chief article of it at Ward's. There are a good many mosquitoes around tonight, and they are rather troublesome. But it's a source of unalloyed satisfaction to me to know that the two million I sat on a minute ago will never sing again. Seagoing Outfit I will bunch the first four or five days of my log of this voyage and make up a few paragraphs therefrom. We backed out from San Francisco at 4 p.m., all full, well, some full of tender regrets for severed associations, others full of buoyant anticipations of a pleasant journey and a revivifying change of scene, and yet others full of schemes for extending their business relations and making larger profits. The balance were full of whiskey, all except Brown. Brown had had a couple of peanuts for lunch, and therefore one could not say he was full of whiskey solely without shamefully transcending the limits of truth. Our little band of passengers were as well and thoughtfully cared for by the friends they left weeping upon the wharf as ever were any similar party of pilgrims. The traveling outfit conferred upon me began with a naval uniform, continued with a case of wine, a small assortment of medicinal liquors and brandy, several boxes of cigars, a bunch of matches, a fine-toothed comb, and a cake of soap, and ended with a pair of socks. By the way, I gave the soap to Brown, who bit into it and then shook his head and said that, quote, as a general thing, he liked to prospect curious foreign dishes and find out what they were like, but he couldn't go with that and he threw it overboard. This outfit is a fair sample of what our friends did for all of us. Three of our passengers, old sea captains, whalers, 
Captain Cuddle, Captain Phelps, and Captain Fitch, fictional names, had bought eight gallons of whiskey, and their friends sent them eleven gallons more. By the way, owing to headwinds and rough seas, this outfit did not hold out. The 19 gallons were ample for the proposed eight-day voyage, but we were out upwards of ten days, you see. The whalers were all dry and unhappy this morning. Making sail. Leaving all care and trouble and business behind in the city, now swinging gently around the hills and passing house by house and street by street out of view, we swept down through the Golden Gate and stretched away toward the shoreless horizon. It was a pleasant, breezy afternoon and a strange new sense of entire and perfect emancipation from labor and responsibility coming strong upon me. I went up on the hurricane deck on which I could have room to enjoy it. I sat down on a bench and for an hour I took a tranquil delight in that kind of labor which is such a luxury to the enlightened Christian, to wit, the labor of other people. Captain Godfrey was making sail and he was moving the men around briskly. He made short work of the job, and his orders were marked by a felicity of language which challenged my aberration. He said, Let go of the main hatch. Belay. Haul away on your tops. Jib. Belay. Clue up on your top gallants. Spanker boom halyards. Belay. Port off your gaff tops. Skyscrapers. Belay. Lively, you lovers. Take a reef in the lee scuppers. Belay. Mr. Baxter. It's coming on to blow at about four bells in the hog watch. Have everything taut and trim for it. Belay! The ship was rolling fearfully. At that point, I got up and started over to ask the captain if it wouldn't be a good idea to belay a little for a change, but I fell down. I then resumed my former seat. For twenty minutes after this, I took careful note of how the captain leaned his body to port when the ship lurched to starboard, and hard to larboard when she lurched to port, and then got up to practice a little. I only met with moderate success, though, when after a few extraordinary evolutions, fetched up against the mainmast. The concussion did not injure the mainmast perceptibly, but if it had been a brick house, the case might have been a little different. I proceeded below rather discouraged. Several Effects of the Turbulent Sea I found twenty-two passengers leaning over the bulwarks, vomiting and remarking, oh my God, and then vomiting again. Brown was there, ever kind and thoughtful, passing from one to another and saying, that's all right, that's all right, you know. It'll clean you out like a jug, and then you won't feel so ornery and smell so ridiculous. The sea was very rough for a few days and nights, and the vessel rolled and pitched heavily. All but six or eight of us took their meals in bed constantly and remained shut up in the staterooms day and night, the saloons and decks looked deserted and lonesome, but gradually the seasick unfortunates convalesced until our dinner complement was augmented to fifteen or twenty. There were frames or racks on the table to keep the dishes in their places, but they did not always succeed in doing so. An occasional heavy lurch would hoist out a dozen and start them prospecting for the deck. Brown was bitterly opposed to the racks and said he wasn't raised to eat out of them brick molds. No rack would answer for soup. The soup plate had to be held in the hand and nicely tilted from side to side to accommodate the fluid to the pitching of the ship. The chairs were not fastened to the floor, and it was fun to see a procession of gentlemen go sliding backwards to the bulkhead, holding their soup plates on a level with their breasts and 
giving their whole attention to preventing the contents from splashing out. They would come back with the flow tide and sail away again on the ebb. It would not do to set a glass of water down. The attentive waiters kept bringing water to Brown, who was always talking and would not see the glass set down in time to make his remark heard. Frank, don't bring me any water. Have to drink it at a gulp to keep it from spilling, and I've had more'n enough already. And yet about once, every two minutes, some passenger opposite would put up his hands and shrink behind them and exclaim, Your water, Mr. Brown, your water. Look, for, look out for your water. And lo, the suffering Brown would find his glass once more replenished and canting dangerously to the leeward. It would be instantly seized and emptied. At the end of a quarter of an hour, Brown had accomplished nothing in the way of dinner on account of these incessant watery interruptions. The boy, Frank, brought another glass of water and said, Will you have some beefsteak, Mr. Brown? Take that water and go to blazes with it. Beefsteak? No. I've drank eleven gallons of water in fifteen minutes, and there ain't enough room in me for a sirloin steak off of my sand fly. Journal Heaving my log... I found the following entries on my tablets. Wednesday the 7th, left San Francisco at 4 p.m., rough night. Thursday, weather still rough, passengers nearly all sick, half a dozen at breakfast out of 30. Friday, strong gale all night, heavy sea on this evening, black overhead. Saturday, weather same or more so. You can take that four days dose of your infamous Pacific, Mr. Balboa, and digest it, and you may consider it well for your reputation in California that we had pretty fair weather to balance the voyage. If we hadn't, I would have given you a blast in this letter that would have made your old dry bones rattle in your coffin, you shameless old foreign humbug. Mark Twain. Letter 2. Honolulu, March 19, 1866. The Ajax voyage continued. The old Norwest swell. On the Sunday following our departure, we had a fine day and no wind scarcely, yet the sea ran high and the ship rolled a good deal. Upon inquiry, I learned that this was caused by the old Northwest swell, which resembles any Broadway swell in that it puts on a good many airs and conducts itself pretentiously even when it is not able to raise the wind. The old northwest swell, produced by the prevailing wind from that quarter, is always present in these seas, ever drifting on its eternal journey across the waters of the Pacific, year after year and century after century, as well no doubt, and piling its billows aloft, careless whether it be storm or calm. The wind and the swell both die out just above the equator. Another wind and another swell come up around Cape Horn from the opposite direction, and these die out just below the equator, so that a windless, waveless belt is left at the center of the earth, which marks the equator as distinctly as does that little black line on the map. Ships drift idly on that glassy sea under the flaming sun of the tropics for weeks together, without a breath of wind to flutter the drooping sails or fan the sweltering and blasphemous sailors. A blast for Balboa, the discoverer. We hear all our lives about the gentle, stormless Pacific and about the smooth and delightful route to the Sandwich Islands and about the steady blowing trades that never vary, never change, never chop around. In all the days of our boyhood, we read how that infatuated old ass, Balboa, 
looked out from the top of a high rock upon a broad sea as calm and peaceful as a sylvan lake, and went into an ecstasy of delight like any other greaser over any other trifle, and shouted in his foreign tongue and waved his country's banner and named his great discovery Pacific, thus uttering a lie which will go on deceiving generation after generation of students while the old ocean lasts. If I had been there with my experience, I would have said to this man Balboa, Now if you think you have made a sufficient display of yourself cavorting around on this conspicuous rock, you'd better fold up your old rag and get back into the woods again, because you have jumped to a conclusion and christened this sleeping boy baby by a girl's name without stopping to inquire into the sex of it. From all I can discover, if this foreign person had named this ocean the four months Pacific, he would have come near the mark. My information is to the effect that the summer months give fine weather, smooth seas, and steady winds, with a month and a few days good weather at the fag end of spring and the beginning of autumn, and that for the other seven or eight months of the year we can calculate pretty regularly on head winds and stern winds and winds of the quarter and winds several points abaft the beam and winds that blow straight up from the bottom and still other winds that come so straight down from above that the four-stunnel spanker jib boom makes a hole through them as clean as a telescope. And the sea rolls and leaps and chops and surges thwart ships and up and down and fore and aft by turns when the gales are blowing. And when they die out, the old Norwest swell comes in and takes a hand and stands a watch and keeps up the marine earthquake until the winds are rested and ready to make trouble again. In a word, the Pacific is rough for seven or eight months a year. Not stormy, understand me. Not what one could justly call stormy, but contrary, baffling, and very rough. Therefore, if that Balboa constrictor had constructed a name for it that had wild or untamed to it, that would have been a majority of two months in the year in favor and in support of it. A word to the commercially wise. If the Pacific were always Pacific and its trades blew steadily the year round, there would never be any necessity for steamers between Honolulu and San Francisco. But as it is, a trade is building up between the two ports, a considerable share of which is going to consist of fast freight and passengers. And only steamers can extend and develop this and conduct it successfully. You see, we plowed through the tangled seas and against the headwinds this trip in a fraction over ten days, arriving a day after one of the fast clippers which left San Francisco a matter of three weeks before. The passage back at this rate is about five to seven days longer for the clipper, but not much more than a day and a half or two days longer for the Ajax. You can rest assured that in that tremendous trade that is springing up between California and the islands during the next few years, the fast freight and passengers must be carried by steamers for seven or eight months in the year. I will remark here that my information about the character of this ocean route is obtained from old ship captains, one of whom has commanded in the packet trade for many years, and who has sailed these seas, whaling and otherwise, for 46 years. But the main argument in favor of a line of fast steamers is this, they would soon populate these islands with Americans and loosen that French and English grip which is gradually closing around them, and which will result in a contest before many years as to which of the two shall seize and hold them. I leave America out of this contest for her influence, and her share in it 
have fallen gradually away until she's out in the cold now and does not even play third fiddle to this European element. But if California can send capitalists down here in seven or eight days' time and take them back in nine or ten, she can fill these islands full of Americans and regain her lost foothold. Hawaii is too far away now, though, when it takes a man 20 days to come here and 25 or 30 to get back in a sailing vessel. The steamer line ought to be established even if it should lose money for two years. Your state has never paid one single dollar profit to the United States. You are nothing but a burden and an expense to the country. But the Kingdom of Hawaii, without costing the United States a cent, has paid her in customs $400,000 in a single year. California's profits from this section can be made greater and far more lasting than those from Montana. Therefore, let your merchants exchange look after the former just as earnestly as they are doing with the latter. Passing away the weary time. In writing about sea voyages, it's customary to state, with the blandest air of conveying information of rare freshness and originality, that anything, however trivial, that promises to spice the weary monotony of the voyage with a new sensation is eagerly seized upon and the most made of it by the passengers. I decline to insult your intelligence by making this threadbare statement, preferring to believe you will easily divine the existence of the fact without having been told it. We had a bullock tied up on the forecastle and a box nearby with two sheep and a pig in it, These animals afforded a trifling amusement for us on fair days, and when opportunity offered, we used to go forward and worry them. The bullock was always down on his beam ends. If he dared ever to get up on his feet for a second in stormy weather, the next lurch of the ship would snatch him bald-headed, as Mr. Brown expressed it, and flop him flat on the deck. And in fair weather, he was seldom able to get up on account of his sore bones, acquired through the bangs and bruises of this foul-weather experiences. So the bullock lay down pretty much all the time from San Francisco to Honolulu, and ever as his wandering gaze rested upon reeling men and plunging ship and towering billow, his eloquent eye damned the weather. Said Mr. Brown once, Let's go forward and twist the captain's tail. Who, I asked, Captain Godfrey? Thunder no, he answered. Captain Gordon. Who? Why the bullock, Captain Gordon? We call him Captain Gordon because he lays down so much. I recognized the point of Mr. Brown's facetiousness then. Captain Gordon, a not undistinguished officer of the Eastern Armies, had kept his room all the way, but as he was unwell enough to prefer that course to staggering about the decks and had a right to do as he pleased anyway, I reprimanded Brown on the spot for his inconsiderate levity. The pig was pulled and hauled and cuffed for the amusement of the idle passengers, but unknown to himself, he had his revenge, for he imparted such a villainous odor of the sty to the hands and clothing of any man who meddled with him that that man could never drift to windward of a lady passenger without suffering disgrace and humiliation under the rebuke of her offended upturned nose. The pig had no name. This was a source of ceaseless regret to Mr. Brown, and he often spoke of it. At last one of the sailors named it, and Mr. Brown happened to be passing by and overheard him. The sailor was feeding the animals, and the pig kept crowding the sheep away and monopolizing the slop pail. The sailor rapped him on the nose and said, Oh, go away with you, Dennis. 
To have heard the passengers go into explosions of laughter when Brown rushed in in a state of wild excitement and related this circumstance, one might have supposed that this ship had been sailing around and round the world for dreary ages, and that this was the first funny circumstance that had ever blessed with a gleam of cheerfulness the dismal voyage. But as other writers have said before, even so diluted a thing as this can send a thrill of delight through minds and bodies growing torpid under the same dullness of a dull, long sea voyage. From that day forward, it was Dennis here and Dennis there, Dennis everywhere. Dennis was in everybody's mouth. Dennis was mentioned twice where the everlasting wonder how many miles we made yesterday was expressed once. A stranger's curiosity could have been excited to the last degree to know who this rival to General Grant notoriety was that so suddenly sprung up this so thoroughly canvassed, discussed, and popular Dennis. But on March 16th, Dennis was secretly executed by order of the steward, and Brown said that when the fact became generally known there was not a dry eye on the ship, he fully believed what he said, too. He had a generous heart and a fervent imagination, and a capacity for creating impossible facts, and then implicitly believing them himself, which is perfectly marvelous. Dennis was served up on the 17th for our St. Patrick's dinner, and gave me a stomach ache that lasted 24 hours. In life he was lovely, and behold, he was powerful in death. Peace to his ashes. The most steady-going amusement the gentlemen had on the trip was euchre, and the most steady-going the ladies had was being seasick. For days and nights together, we used to sit in the smoking room and play euchre on the same table, so sacredly devoted to seven up by the livelier set of passengers who traveled last voyage in the Ajax. It took me some little time to learn to play euchre with all those old sea captains because they brought in so many terms that are neither in Hoyle nor the dictionary. Hear how they talked. Captain Fitch. Who hold that ace on there? Captain Phelps. Why, I did. Captain Cuddle. No, you didn't either. I hove it myself. Captain Phelps, you didn't. By the eternal, you hove the king. Captain Fitch, well now, that's just the way. Always jawing about who hove this and who hove that. Always saddling on a taunt bowling. Why can't you go slow? You keep heaving on him so fast that a man can't tell nothing about him. Captain Phelps, well I don't care, let it go. I can stand it. I collate. Here goes for a euchre. Here the captain played an odd suit ace. Swing that bower if you've got it, but I'll take them three last tricks, or break a rope yarn. I, as partner to Captain Phelps, get bewildered and make a bad play. Captain Phelps. Now what did you trump my ace for? That ain't the way to do it. You're always a-sailing too close to the wind. In a moment or two, I'll make another bad play. Captain Phelps. Great Scotland! What in the nation you dumpin' that blubber at such a time as this? Rip, I knowed it. Took with a nine spot, royals, stunnels, everything gone to smash and nobody euchred. It is necessary to explain that those ancient incomprehensible whalers always called worthless odd suit cards blubbers. At home. We passengers are all at home now taking meals at the American Hotel and 
sleeping in neat white cottages, buried in noble shade trees and enchanting tropical flowers and shrubbery. Mark Twain Letter 3, Honolulu, March, 1866 Still at sea. I have been here a day or two now, but I do not know enough concerning the country yet to commence writing about it with confidence, so I will drift back to sea again. The Ajax and her officers. The Ajax is a 2,000-ton propeller and one of the strongest vessels built afloat. All her timber work is very heavy and fastened and bolted together as if to hold for a century. She was intended for a warship, and this accounts for her extraordinary strength. She has excellent cabin accommodations for 60 passengers, without crowding and bunks for 40 more. She has room for over 1,200 tons of freight after her coal and stores for the round trip are all in. And when a coal depot is established for her hereafter at Honolulu, so she need carry only fuel enough for half the voyage, she can take two or three hundred tons more. Her principal officers all served in the war. Captain Godfrey and his chief mate, Baxter, were both in our Navy, and Sanford, the chief engineer, has seen a great deal of service. He held his commission as chief engineer in the Navy for 16 years and was in seven battles in the Mexican War and six during the rebellion. A very good record. Hyatt, the purser, served under General Sherman in the paymaster's department with the rank of captain. The steamer's engines. The Ajax has a harp engine laid horizontally so as to be entirely below the water line, a judicious arrangement in view of the ship's intended duty originally in a service where cannonballs and shells would pelt her instead of the rain showers of the Pacific. The horizontal engine takes up much less room when placed in an upright position. It packs as closely as sardines in a box and gives the ship a good deal of extra space for freight and passengers. Every portion of the Ajax engine and fire rooms is kept in perfect neatness and good order by the chief's crew of 18 men. In this place, I would drop a hint of caution to all romantic young people who yearn to become bold sailor boys and ship as firemen on a steamer. Such a berth has its little drawbacks, inconveniences which not all the romance in the world can reconcile one to. The principle of these is the sultry temperatures of the furnace room, where the firemen, far below the surface of the sea and away from the fresh air and the light of day, stands in a narrow space between two rows of furnaces that flame and glare like the fires of hell and shovels coal four hours at a stretch in an unvarying temperature of 148 degrees Fahrenheit. And yet how the people of Honolulu growl and sweat on an uncommonly warm day with the mercury at 82 degrees in the shade and somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 degrees in the sun. Steamer firemen do not live on the average over five years. The Importance of the Hawaiian Trade It's a matter of the utmost importance in the United States that her trade with these islands should be carefully fostered and augmented, because it pays. There can be no better reason than that. In actual revenue, California is a burden to the country. She always falls behind. She always leaves a deficit at the end of the year to be made up by the nation. She never yields revenue enough to support the government establishments within her borders. 
In contrast with this, the Sandwich Islands, which cost the United States but little, have paid her in customs as high as $400,000 in gold coin in a single year. Duties paid upon sugar, etc., received in American ports and subtracted from the profits of the producer here. I will give the figures. They were compiled by the late N. Lombard Ingalls, secretary of the San Francisco Board of Brokers. Regarded as one of the best accountants and financial statisticians that ever visited these islands, the following estimate is for 1864. Coffee, 14,854 pounds. Duty, 5 cents per pound, $742.70. Molasses, 259,469 gallons. Duty, 8 cents per gallon. $23,757.52. Pulu, 664,600 pounds at 7 cents per pound at 20%, $9,304.40. Salt, 318,000 pounds at 18 cents per 100 pounds, $554.40. Sugar, 885,957 pounds at 3 cents average duty, $265,558.71. Rice, 337,978 pounds at 2.5 cents per pound, $9,449.45. Unenumerated at least $2,000. Being from San Francisco alone, fully $311,367.18. Mr. Ingalls adds that sugar and molasses sent to Portland, Oregon, the same year on which $40,000 duties were paid, making over $350,000 paid in revenues to the United States for the Sandwich Islands products on the Pacific Coast alone. Mr. Ingalls then says, the eastern vessel's cargoes consist mostly of oil transshipped from American whalers and therefore duty-free. The balance of their cargoes are hides, wool, and sundries. I think it would be safe to estimate that the whole of them did not pay over $50,000 to the Custom House. You will acknowledge that a trade which pays so well, albeit with no risk and small expense to the U.S., ought to be encouraged, extended, and irrevocably secured. There are two ways of doing this. Let Congress moderate the high duties somewhat. Secondly, let the islands be populated with Americans. To accomplish the latter, a steamer is indispensable. The sailing vessels can carry freight easily enough, but they are too slow and uncertain to build up the passenger trade from which immigration and permanent settlement here must naturally result. In California, people are always pressed for time. It is only a few scattering idlers and pleasure seekers who can look serenely upon such an appalling sacrifice of precious hours as a tedious voyage of three weeks hither in a baffled and buffeting sailing vessel and a return trip occupying four or five weeks. But businessmen and capitalists would run down here by the steamer when they knew the sea voyage could be ciphered down to days and hours before starting, and a short number of days at that and with the influx of capital would come population. And then I could not ride over mile after mile of fertile soil as I did yesterday 
without seeing half a dozen human habitations. How our trade must be extended if it is done at all. An important question to be considered is how a steamer is to be made to pay during the year or two that she is populating the islands, doubling their productions and establishing a profitable trade for herself. For more than one half of the export trade is now in the hands of the sailing vessels, secured to them by joint ownership in ships and plantations, by long-time contracts for transportation and by advance money to planters, and will remain so for some time. Legitimate way to establish a steamer on a paying basis from the first is to give her a government subsidy of fifty to a hundred thousand dollars a year for carrying the mails and subtract from it the five hundred thousand dollars a year appropriated for the China Mail Company, which is to begin business the first of next January. The latter company will either let a subcontract to Ajax or else put a small steamer of their own at the Honolulu trade, probably the former. The China steamer will be a 5,000-ton vessel. The Ajax is 2,000 tons burden. Neither of them can come enter here except in broad daylight, so narrow and crooked and shallow is the channel. The harbor is so small that it cannot accommodate more than 200 vessels comfortably, and so narrow that a large ship cannot be handled freely in it. It is not much wider than the river at Sacramento. A section of your river a mile and a half long opposite Sacramento would afford an ampler harbor than this. For half a mile, a ship coming in and winds about through a channel as crooked as a dog's hind leg and marked by long lines of upright posts on either side. And in this channel, there is not good room enough for two ships to pass abreast. The Great China Mail Steamer cannot enter this port. She will draw too much water. There is only about 22 feet in the bar. If she arrived here at dusk, she would have to lie at anchor outside the harbor all night and exchange mails by small boats in the morning that is, in fair weather. In the stormy season, in the season of the terrible Kona, she might have to lie there for five or six days. The China Mail Steamer will be at sea from 35 to 40 days in a round trip. With her provisions and 60 to 70 tons of coal a day and other expenses, if she gets off with an outlay of $1,500 a day, while underway, she will do well. Honolulu is clear out of her way, both going and coming. Leaving San Francisco, she would naturally come down until a little below the 30th parallel to get the benefit of the trades, but from thence to Honolulu, nine degrees further south, would be all lost time to her. Returning, she would leave Shanghai and bend around north till above the 40th parallel to get the best trade winds, and then if she had no destination but San Francisco, she could go straight across with a spanking breeze all the way. But that not being the case, she would make use of the west wind a great part of the voyage, I suppose, and then take a lot of no longer useful canvas and come straight down a south matter of 20 degrees, land at Honolulu, and then sail north again about 17 to get to San Francisco, thus over 500 miles to strike Honolulu. Returning, she will come out of her course 1,200 altogether, full 1,700 miles every trip, more than she would have to make if she left the islands out of her voyage. The Ajax is considered fast. The greatest day's run she made this trip, with the wind exactly right and every rag of canvas set in drawing, was about 300 miles. On other occasions, she did not make over 200. So to allow the China ship the very liberal average speed of 275 miles a day, 250 would be near right, she must lose over six days every voyage if she comes to Honolulu.
she will fool away at least one day here each way. Eight days altogether. Expense for a year, $144,000. It cannot be done any cheaper by the China Mail steamer. The Ajax can do it for a lot less than the China company would make money by subletting the contract to her. The China steamer will certainly never perform the Sandwich Island part of her contract with the government. That portion will unquestionably be executed by some other steamer. And so why not turn it over to the Ajax, and thus secure to the country the benefits that must accrue to it from the permanent establishment of a San Francisco and Honolulu steamship line? I'm not particular whether the Ajax owners continue her in this trade or not, but I would like to see some steamer line established on this route. And I only speak of the Ajax in this connection because she has already gained a good footing and because she's owned by a company which has the confidence of the public and is financially able to carry out a project of this kind in a good and satisfactory manner. And because, further, if the China company put a small steamer of their own in this trade, they will not be likely to do it for a year to come. And a 12-month is a good deal of time to lose. Mark Twain <laughs>